0: Hey, welcome back. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We just finished a series through the book of Acts. It took us two full seasons, uh, just over 50 sermons to cover every word in the book of Acts. And today we start a new series uh, through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, this series will only last eight or nine weeks. Uh, It'll be today plus uh, seven weeks in Matthew plus uh, an Easter sermon in Matthew. And so this morning is more or less an introduction to that sermon series. And it's uh, structured around the seven mountains in Matthew. Matthew mentions um, mountains on seven occasions. And so we're going to get into that and use that as a structure for our sermon series. But if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read through all this. Yes, including the genealogy. I know how much all of you like genealogies, but uh, so this will be edifying for all of us. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Uh, And as we read through this, uh, there are a couple things I want you to to take notice of. I want you to take notice of any time Matthew points out Jesus' title or his authority, or anything significant that Matthew says that points to Jesus' divinity. So, starting in chapter 1, verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Let's pause here. Interesting note about Matthew's genealogy is that uh, he lists five women. And the five women that he lists uh, all have a significant story, of course, in Scripture. But uh, particularly these five women, Tamar is the first. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab. and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methon, and Methon the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I'll just pause here. I know how much we all love genealogies. Uh, and I covered this really in detail in our Genesis 1 through 11 sermon series over the summer. And so if you would like a full exegetical treatment of why genealogies uh, and what they are in scripture for, feel free to look that up. I don't want to take a lot of our time here this morning, but I will make a a few observations as we just close out that list. Um, The genealogy that Matthew lists uh, is traced back to Abraham whereas Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And if you compare those two genealogies, which I know that every one of you have done before, right, Uh, drawing out the names, um, you'll notice that Matthew is very selective in his choice of how he uh, arranges and lists the genealogy, I'm not going to say it, the the record of names that he mentions. Uh, Verse 17 gives us uh, some hint to the structure of this. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So he is arranged structurally to include a specific set of names that equal this number, 14 to 14 to 14. And that's a part of his, um, of his structure and his purpose in doing this. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, in in my Bible and in my notes here, I I outlined and... um, Highlighted every verse that gives Jesus a title or a description of his divinity, of his uh, who he is as the Son of God, in blue. And then, um, then also in my Bible, I've you can see I've just highlighted key portions of it that, that demonstrate this. And I don't know if you were counting or keeping up with it, but I counted fifteen different references to Jesus. Um, through the first 40 verses of the book of Matthew. Some of those are included in chapter 2 with the visit of the wise men. You remember the story at Christmas when the wise men come. They said, uh, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Uh there was a prophecy. It was told that in Bethlehem, uh, they told Herod that, uh, that from Bethlehem shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then skipping down into chapter 2, verse 11, when they came, they came into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream, they departed in these first 40 verses, Matthew immediately gets to the point that his entire gospel is trying to make, and that he wants you to see who Jesus really is. He reveals. Jesus' true identity by listing these titles and by associating him with these important figures in Israel's history. If you just look back uh, just at verse 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then it gives him two descriptors, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And you might say, well, we just read there in verse 16 or so that, that he was the son of Joseph, uh, but also really the son of God via the Holy Spirit. So why does this say he's the son of David and the son of Abraham? Um, in many of these other titles, uh, it, it says Jesus who is called Christ. By the way, that's not his last name. Um, Christ is a title. It, was, it means the anointed one, Christos. It means the anointed one, and it would have been a reference to his kingship. That remember when David was anointed by Samuel, um, this was how they ordained and acknowledged and, and put a king into power is through this anointing. And so the anointed one is a reference to Jesus's kingship. Uh, Matthew uses other titles. He calls him Jesus, which is, you know, in Hebrew, Yeshua or Joshua, which means the Lord saves or the Lord is our salvation. That was the name given to him. Christ, of course, is anointed one, uh, son of David. This is a description of the future coming king that was promised to David. You remember way back in 2 Samuel, uh, when David wants to build the temple for the Lord, and and God says, it's not for you to build the temple. But then he gives him all these great promises. You will have a son, and your son will reign, and and he's the one who's going to, to build a temple. And that was promised through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7. And um and in this covenant often referred to as the Davidic covenant um God makes this unconditional promise to David. And the promise is that from your offspring there would come from the tribe of Judah a, a king whose kingdom would endure forever. And David didn't have to do anything to get this promise. It was an unconditional promise that God told this to David and um, it starts with this promise about Solomon, but then it quickly transitions in verse 13 of 2 Samuel. You don't have to turn there, but it says, uh, the promise continues that I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So what began is this promise to Solomon to David about Solomon quickly transitioned into something entirely different an eternal kingdom uh, with an eternal heir of David on the throne. And so when it says that Jesus was the son of David, that's the promise that is being referred to. That Jesus is that promised heir, the offspring of David that would come and would set up an eternal kingdom. Right away, Matthew wants us to know Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. Two, he's the son of David. And then he references him as the son of Abraham. And what does that mean? The son of Abraham refers to the promise given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 22 when God promised Abraham through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you believed in me. Um, This promise, he said in Genesis 22, 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So when Matthew picks up these titles and just the first few words of his gospel account, He's telling us that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus is the promised heir of the throne of David and his kingdom will be forever. And he's telling us that this will be a blessing to all nations. Listen, there's a lot to unpack here in just this first verse, but if you flip, you don't have to flip over, but if you you remember in Genesis chapter 28 at the very end, Uh, Jesus, when He is giving uh, what is called the Great Commission, uh, when He brings His disciples to Him, He says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, where? Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you for how long? Always. Always. To the end of the age, Jesus is starting his eternal reign in his kingdom and releasing it through his apostles. That's where we just spent the last 28 chapters, the last 50 weeks in, in the book of Acts, seeing how it started with just 120 disciples in an upper room, and then in the end, Paul is in Rome about to testify before the emperor about the... The, the Jesus the King. This is how quickly the gospel spread in, in about three decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we can see right away in Matthew's gospel, this is who he is. He is the anointed one, the Christ. He's the son of David, that is the, the coming rightful heir of a throne that will be established forever. And he's the son of Abraham who will be a blessing to all the nations. Matthew wants us to know right away who Jesus is, and what he came to do. And there are all these titles in there. A few other places in Matthew 1 that we just read, um, when it says that uh, in verse 18, Jesus, his birth took place in this way, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is immediately setting Jesus apart as uh, two things. Number one, not a sinner. Right? Not a sinner. All of us born since Adam and Eve were created. Every person born in the natural way. That's all of us, by the way. Um, All of us born in this way were born into sin. Romans 3.23, you know it very well. The Bible says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not even one, that you will never be able to one up another human on earth based on your level of sin before God. All of us are sinners, and all of us are condemned, and all of us are unclean, and all of us, none of us possess a righteousness in and of ourselves. None of us are good enough to get to heaven on our own merits. Amen? Amen. Just follow me around for a week and I'll prove that true even as a redeemed born again believer in Jesus Christ, right? Um, that, that during this time on earth that we still are susceptible to sin and temptation and all those things, none of us are righteous. But the fact that Jesus was born how? Conceived by the Holy Spirit means that he did not inherit Adam's original sin. Set him apart. Can you imagine mom's if you didn't have to tell your two-year-old, right, don't touch that or, you know, don't pick that up or did you eat that or did you pull the dog's tail or, right, and your kid immediately responds with a lie or with disobedience or in some kind of a sinful, naturally sinful uh, way that they automatically know how to break, you know, honor your father, mother, the fifth commandment and, and do not steal, right? They can take things and do not lie and, and do not covet. I mean, ages one through nine, if it doesn't demonstrate anything for you parents, it is this that kids, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? I mean, it just is apparent for all of us. There is not one of us who has ever kept the law perfectly. You you don't see in Scripture this balancing idea that if your good outweighs your bad, then God will accept you. There's no grade on a curve, The point is that we are all dead in our transgressions because the standard of righteousness is revealed in Exodus 20, right? The Ten Commandments. The standard of righteousness is Jesus Christ. And so all of us are down here dead in our sins and transgressions. Jesus isn't trying to help you live a little bit of a better life. He's not trying to make you a little bit better. You don't have to go to Mary in order to get more grace with Jesus. The Bible reveals that we are dead in our sins and transgressions and that Jesus, because he was born of the Holy Spirit, was absolutely sinless, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is telling us this about Jesus, that he is, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, which has that idea for us, that he is absolutely sinless. It's reiterated when the angel, by the way, an angel comes to Joseph and tells him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So even in the naming of Jesus uh, that Joseph is commanded to give him the name Yeshua, that the Lord saves, this is also this sort of messianic fulfillment and this prophetic fulfillment. And if that's not enough, the... Um, it's quoted in verse 22 Matthew quotes behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel and then Matthew's very helpful to us who don't speak Hebrew and, and know these names Emmanuel means god with us right Matthew wants you to know immediately in his first 40 verses these first 40 sentences who Jesus is and the rest of his gospel The rest of his account of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his commissioning, all of it is built on this foundation that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied about long ago, and that Jesus has all authority and that he is establishing a kingdom, right? I just summarized the whole book of Matthew for you. You don't have to read it. I'm just kidding, you do. Um, But... We're going to be looking at some of these themes and some of these major points over the next nine weeks through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to structure it around these seven mountains, and I'll I'll get to that in just a second. Um, When we look at the four gospel accounts, what are the four gospels in the Bible, in the New Testament? Just say them out loud. They are... That's right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of you know that. Some of you don't. Now you do. The gospel accounts, these four books written by four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, deal primarily with their content, the life, death, ministry of Jesus, his words, his teaching. Some of you have Bibles that have his words in red. But if you want to find the highest concentration of what Jesus was like on earth, just Hang out in those four Gospels. And each of these Gospel writers come at it from a different slant, right? For Mark, Jesus is portrayed as the suffering servant, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and that those who follow him will also participate in his sufferings. For John, Jesus is the Word made flesh. He was with God in the beginning. He was God, and all things that were made were made through him. And John highlights these seven I Am statements. I am, from Exodus 3, when God revealed himself to Moses and said, uh, Moses said, well, who am I supposed to tell the Israelites who sent me to deliver you? And, And he says, tell them I am has sent you. So John, later picking up on that, highlights all these places where Jesus equates himself with God in the burning bush saying, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. All these statements, that's John's lamp. Luke, this incredible historian, gives tons of eyewitness details and depicts Jesus primarily as the Son of Man, right? Highlighting Jesus' divinity in the midst of his humanity. So in all these four gospel accounts, what makes Matthew distinct? Well, let's just start here. Who is Matthew anyway? Uh, Matthew in the Bible was one of Jesus' disciples, uh, he was called and promoted to an apostle. Um, Matthew, before he became a disciple, does anybody know what he did for a living? Yeah, he was a tax collector, right? He was a tax collector. He was a, a Jewish person um, who was uh, hired by Rome and the Roman government to collect taxes for them. And what do we know about tax collectors, right? Everybody loves a good tax collector, right? Um, they're everybody's favorite person. Absolutely not, right? Um, When the um, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious officials, when they wanted to tell you that you were the worst of the worst, they would often tell you that you're a tax collector. Um, Matter of fact, Jesus took a lot of flack when Matthew became a disciple. He was from the town of Capernaum. Uh, He's also called Levi, by the way, the son of Alphaeus. And. when when he became a follower of Jesus, he left his career forever and he threw a huge banquet and he invited all of his tax collector buddies in Jesus' honor and Jesus showed up and guess who had something to say about that? The Pharisees said to Jesus' disciples, what kind of company does your teacher keep here? Um, he's a friend of sinners, and, and, um, and, and so uh, Jesus, when he found out, it's one of the clearest explanations of God's heart and his gospel to man. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came not to save good, self-righteous people who don't think they need Jesus, but Jesus came to save the poor in spirit, right? The most humble, the most broken, the people who are most aware of their sin. And that may be you today. Maybe you're uh, well aware of just how often you fall short of the glory of God. Maybe it's the first time you've kind of come to this need where you realize that uh, unlike the popular culture's message, just follow your heart and you're the, you know, your truth is your truth and all those kinds of things that, that maybe you're seeing for the first time by conviction of the Holy Spirit that, that I, I'm not enough to be pleasing to God, that I'm not acceptable in my sinful condition, that, that I need Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and I need his grace, I need his forgiveness, I need his covering over me. Matthew was in that crowd. When Jesus called to Matthew, <clears throat> he left everything <clears throat> and he began to follow him. Now, by the way, Matthew means um, gift of God. Is there Are there any Matthews in the room besides Matt Freed? All right, there's Matthew. You're a gift of God, Matt. Is there anybody else, Matthew, any others in the room? Only one Matthew. Can you believe it? You are our gift from God to this congregation. Um, I know Matthew wouldn't say that about himself. But this is Matthew's background, and he's writing not because he's some righteous person, but because Jesus made him righteous and he transformed his life. And Matthew would later go on to be uh, an apostle. He would be become a a lifetime follower of Jesus, even to the point of martyrdom. Uh, Matthew was forever changed. And and according to Revelation 21, verse 14, when the heavenly city comes down out of heaven, it says that the wall of the city has 12 foundations and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles. There's going to be a day when yeah I don't know this for sure, so don't quote me, but like you'll be able to go to one of those foundations of the eternal city and and trace Matthew's name. It'll be a, a permanent fixture there. Talk about God elevating somebody who, by all accounts, culturally and otherwise, Matthew would not have deserved it. Well, in his purpose for writing, Matthew wants us to see Jesus' divinity. Uh, he wants us to see who Jesus is, that he's the king and that he's the Messiah. And he structures his book in that way. Let me just give you a couple of uh, notes from David Platt. He says it's important for you to know that the book of Matthew is an account of good news. Matthew's purpose in this book is to write an account of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is, how Jesus came, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. And you might say, well, okay, that's a very obvious, and you've already mentioned that, but but just in case there are people here who are new to church, are new to the Bible, maybe you've not spent a lot of time studying the Bible, and, and this is your first kind of time to hear this, gospel is is a Bible Christian kind of word that means good news. And, and the good news is the message of Jesus. And so that's Matthew's purpose is to show you the good news about what Jesus did and what he accomplished in his lifetime. A uh, couple things Matthew is not. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is not a uh, an epistle or a congregational letter, right? You remember Paul; he would fire off a letter to Corinth, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, uh, and and he would tell them things like, you know, hey, this is how you should do this, and this is here's some things that you shouldn't do, right? This kind of a, I won't go into it because it's kind of a, an R-rated theme. But but Paul had some interesting things to say to the Corinthians, but it was a um, it was an occasional letter, meaning it was written for a purpose to address an occasion that happened within the life of the church. Galatians was written to the believers in Galatia, Philippians to the believers in Philippi, and so on and so forth. Those are congregational letters written from Paul to a people in a particular city and region. Matthew's gospel is not like that. Matthew is writing a general letter to all people to present to them who Jesus is. Second, this is not a comprehensive biography. And none of the other Gospels are either. Uh, As a matter of fact, John even says, if all the things that Jesus did were were written down, uh, volumes, the whole world wouldn't contain all the books that were written. Isn't that frustrating, right? I mean, how many of us want to know all the things that Jesus did and all the things that he accomplished and all the things that he said? This is not a comprehensive biography. Uh, David Platt continues. He says, Matthew was not trying to include every minute detail of Jesus' life. There are many things that have been left out. As a matter of fact, Matthew purposefully chose various stories, and he abbreviated teachings from Jesus' life in order to accomplish his specific purpose. The gospel includes what it does because the author wants to say something specific about the person and work of Jesus. And then the third thing David Platt says is that um, it's not a chronological history. obviously chronology plays some importance because it starts with Jesus's genealogy and his birth and it ends with his death and resurrection and so but between those two sort of anchor points Matthew feels the freedom as he's led by the Holy Spirit to rearrange events in Jesus's life and it's difficult to find a real true chronology of Jesus's life Uh, others have tried it there are Bibles that you can buy uh, called uh, uh, Harmony of the Gospels, and based on as much information as we can gather, it puts this sort of timeline into place. But, but Matthew is not that way. Uh, Platt says that Matthew has intentionally arraigned his ma- material around specific emphases. In particular, Matthew organizes his gospel around five distinct long teaching sections. And in between those sections, he gives different stories and narratives Right, you can think of some of the teaching sections, right? Uh, Matthew 5 through 7 is the, the Sermon on the, on the Mount, right? And then in Matthew uh, 21, 22, 23, it's the, the Olivet Discourse. There are these large chunks of uh, Jesus' teaching uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to frame our series through the seven mountains in Matthew. And I uh, brought this up here for a reason. Uh, I'm going to try to draw this. I'm not a very good um, artist, and I'll try to make this clear for everybody. Uh, This one got mashed. So (laughs) let me get one with a real tip. Yeah, that's one with a tip. Um, We're going to talk and arrange the sermon series through these seven mountains, okay? And let me just give you a couple of disclaimers really quick before I do that. Mountains aren't the predominant theme in, in the Gospel of Matthew. His purpose in writing, I've already told you, is to give an account of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, He's not writing so that you'll see some secret hidden message in these mountains, okay? I just want to make that really, really clear. Um, By understanding these mountains, you won't have unlocked some sort of secret knowledge. There's no numerology here. There's no hidden meaning. This isn't like one of those kind of things where you put on those red tinted glasses and you see an amazing new message decoded. You won't get any of that. Think of this more like an interesting layer, an interesting layer that shows some structure and some nuance and that demonstrates the depth of Scripture. It's just one of the reasons why you'll never master this book. All right. How many of you have been reading the Bible for 40 years or more? Right. Raise your hand, a lot of you. You'll never master it. You'll always come to a place when the Holy Spirit, based on your situation in life, you'll always say, I don't think I ever remember that verse. I've never read that before. I've never seen that before. You know that God says that his word is eternal? This will be with us for an eternity. And so you'll, you'll never master it. And so, when you come to these mountains, um, it just shows some depth and some layering of Scripture. Because just when you think you've mastered the Bible and you don't need it anymore, you kind of move on to something th- different or deeper. Um, you see all these new things in Scripture, but the disclaimer is this: the main message never changes. You're not going to find new and different messages that contradict what the Bible's general arc of redemption is saying. Amen? I mean, what am I talking about? The main message of the Bible is that God the Creator sent His Son Jesus to reconcile sinners to Himself. I used to describe evangelism this way. It's it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, right? When I share the gospel with somebody, it's because I was needy and I found Jesus to be fully satisfying. And my role in evangelism is telling others where they can also be fully satisfied and forgiven of their sin. That's the main message of the Bible is the redemptive ark in Jesus Christ. And you won't find some sort of number code here that helps you predict the future, right? I had a guy that I... Um, presented the gospel to you once that he wanted to get saved so that he could win the lottery and he was convinced that the Bible contained all kinds of numerology things that if you just get the code right, then it'll give you all the right numbers and you'll become a bazillionaire or whatever. This is not this, okay? You won't find any number code here. You won't find some sort of hidden messages for a new invention or for some hidden alien technology, or right? Those who go to the Bible to search for things like that, I once had a guy come to me and he just said, uh, this was way back in Oklahoma City, but he said, uh, maybe 20 years ago, he said, um, hey, what is the Bible... Say about marijuana and and how can I justify my use of marijuana? Right, that's a reason to come to Scripture that has nothing to do with the main purpose of Scripture. It's trying to find some authority above yourself to justify the way you live and or to you know to justify yourself before God. But but that's not the Bible's main point. And so whenever we get to these seven mountains, I just want to make it absolutely clear: you're not going to know Jesus better or differently. Because you see this, it's just some nuance and layer and depth that affirms, strengthens and clarifies and often sheds light on that main redemption message. And then the second clarification, much shorter, Um, you may have heard of it, you may not, it's not a big deal, but I'm not talking about what's often called the seven mountains mandate. I don't know if you've heard of that, but different people in our culture in America have described these sort of seven mountains in our culture. And that if we can, it's really a movement toward what's called dominionism, right? Dominionism uh, is this idea that Christians have the God-given right and authority to take all power and all control over all the earth. And they often do it in a militaristic kind of way right to to overcome and to overwhelm all cultures all around the world and it's kind of this world dominance theme that's what's often referred to as the seven mountain mandate this is not that all right i could go on more and more about that but it's not important so what are the seven mountains uh, we've got um we've got the mountain of temptation in matthew 4 that's going to be next week um, the mountain of temptation in Matthew 4. Uh, then we've got the um, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, then the third message is the mountain of separation in Matthew chapter 14. I know you might not be able to read this, but it's leading to a, a picture. Uh, we've got the uh, mountain of feeding In Matthew 15, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then we've got the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, The Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And then finally, the mountain of commissioning in Matthew 28. Uh, Now, I could have written it, you know, in a line, but... But what I want you to see structurally is that the way Matthew has arranged this is called a chiasm. A chiasm. Did I say that right? Chiasm, sorry. A chiasm or a chiastic structure is one in which um, uh, numbers 1 and 7 correspond to each other, right? So on the mountain of temptation... Satan says to Jesus, it says he took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all the nations of the earth and he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth, right? So, So how does Matthew 28 correspond to that? Jesus called all of his followers and his disciples up on top of a high mountain and what did he say? All authority has been given to me. Not, not because I gave into temptation, but because I, I conquered the cross and the grave, and I rose from the dead, and because I f- perfectly fulfilled the will of God for my life, now all authority is mine. For now and forever. You see the beautiful contrast between that? Uh, this, uh, the, the second mountain and the fourth mountain, um, Jesus is describing um, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount all about kingdom values right now. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to adopt this way of living. He starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. And blessed are you, um, you know, if, you, um, if you're persecuted. And he goes through all these sort of blessings. And what is Matthew 24? This sort of 22 to 24 range it is the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is describing uh, the end times, and what the kingdom is going to look like in the future. Many people include in this uh, s- uh, sixth mountain reference this idea where Jesus is fulfilling the typology of Joshua, right? I don't want to get too geeked out here, but, but when Joshua fulfilled the command from Moses in Deuteronomy 28 to have all of Israel get on Mount Ebal and Gerizim, and that one side would cry out the blessings, and one side would cry out the curses, and and then Joshua actually did this, I think it's in Joshua chapter 8, and when he did that, Jesus on the Mount of Olives contrasted with the seven or the ten woes, right, where he said, woe to you Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs and hypocrites, right, so we see these blessings and curses in this episode, but that contrasts with this large teaching block where Jesus is describing people who are born again and have this new kingdom life. Uh, the third one, um, I have to check my notes here. In um, the third sort of section, um, mountains three and six, Jesus in Matthew 14 withdraws alone so that he can pray and find strength and his humanity is on full display here, right? What happened on that day? John the Baptist uh, was beheaded and Jesus learned that his cousin was dead and he had just had this massively long ministry day. And so he sent his disciples out on the boat and it says he went up to this mountain so that he could pray and just be alone. His his despair and his sadness and the large workload that had just happened on that ministry day. Mark brings this out really clearly. But it, it, in Matthew 14, says he went up by himself on this mountain to pray and seek God. Well what happens on Matthew 17? It's this Mount of Transfiguration where what's on display? Jesus is transformed and, and his glory is revealed, and Moses and Elijah show up and this voice of God comes and all uh, Matthew, I mean Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus fully revealed in his deity. Isn't that incredible? So in a chiastic form here, what's um, what's the, the, there, there, there we go. There we go. what's um, what's highlighted is let's see if I can get the mashed one to work. Oh yeah, it's the best one. <laughs> uh, you know, in this sort of chi- chiastic form, what is at the centerpiece is the one that hints at what the author is trying to say. And so what does is, what is mountain number four say? It's this mountain of feeding. And to see this, Jesus as this new and better Moses, right? There are all these comparisons between Jesus and David and Jesus and the, um, um, as the Joshua, but then also with Moses. And when Matthew is demonstrating Jesus as a greater prophet than Moses, he is the prophet that Moses prophesied about. Remember what happened when Moses went up on a mountain, It said, do not let anybody even come close to the mountain in Exodus 32 through 34, right? Nobody can even get close to it. Nobody can touch it, only Moses. And Moses went up and he experienced God's presence on the mountain. But in the mountain of feeding, Jesus goes up and and all these crowds come to him. And they all want healing and they're from all over. Everybody is welcome and everyone has access to God through Jesus. So this is what we're going to focus on over the next couple months as we look through these seven mountains and we'll unpack each one as we get to them, but I just want you to know this is a structure for our sermon and it's a layer in Matthew's gospel, but you don't have to understand this to get Jesus, okay? The message of Jesus is for everybody and it's these sort of deeper sort of things that we see that bring us Um, that bring us greater clarity. And so we'll hope to unpack that over the next seven or eight weeks. Well, I hope that this helps you appreciate, uh, number one, how the Holy Spirit has inspired Scripture. Isn't it beautiful? I don't think, I don't give Matthew credit, maybe enough, but, but I don't think Matthew envisioned all the ways in which the Holy Spirit would lead him to write in such a way that, truly reveals who Jesus is in this way. And so that's one of my hopes is that you'll appreciate uh, Scripture and its depth. Uh, But another thing I want you to see is um, why is it so important that we talk about Jesus so much? I know most of you know the answer to that. But if you're from the outside and you've never been to church or maybe you're here for the first time or maybe you're just sort of getting to know the bible you might think well these people are kind of obsessed with Jesus right why are we fixated on somebody that we we can't see with our own eyes has anybody here ever seen Jesus with your own eyes don't tell me i don't want to know all right <laughs> but for the most of us probably for the most part none of us have ever seen Jesus with our physical eyes none of us have ever touched put our hand in his nail-scarred hands put our hand in his side like thomas did People who, believe, who don't believe in Jesus might think that we're absolutely crazy that we gather every week to sing songs to Jesus and about Jesus, that we open our prayers and close our prayers in Jesus' name, that almost every sermon I preach, 52 weeks out of the year, ends up talking about Jesus in some way. Week after week after week. Why? Well, let me just close with uh, how Scripture might answer that in just a couple of passages. Because that's the point Matthew's trying to get to. Matthew wants you to see Jesus for who he is revealed to be. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the one whom he appointed as the heir of all things, also through whom he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that Jesus is more superior. You won't find passages that distill the importance of who Jesus is as clear as that it's such a good passage so rich the author of Hebrews tells us that all that you see was made through Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God that he is the exact imprint of God's nature meaning he is God himself that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and that he lowered himself to make purification for sins and now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high You remember when James, uh, yeah, James and John had their mom ask Jesus, hey, when you get to heaven and you come into your kingdom, can you just make sure that my sons sit on your right and your left? These were positions of power. And the rest of the apostles were cool with that, weren't they? No, they were indignant. They were furious that they would get their mother to ask Jesus to make them. But Jesus' reply is, to sit at my right and left is not for, for me to give, but those places have been reserved the right hand of God when Jesus sits at the right hand of the father in majesty there is no higher place than that Jesus is right there First uh, Peter 1 says blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is Im- Im- imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And we rejoice in this, even though for now a little while you've been grieved by various trials so that your your faith can be tested and proved genuine. And it says in verse 8, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is why I started the service this way, with there's something different when people sing with, their, with all their conviction, right? Something different when we come together and we worship and, and we sing, not because the band is great or because the music is great or the singers are great or the sound system or the room or the lights. or No, but because this passage, though you haven't seen him, you love him and you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile way of life that you inherited from your fathers. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. I had Colossians 1, 13 through 23. It's another great passage. Janine actually read it uh, during the song service. And I told her, I had that too. That God delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Are you starting to see why Jesus is a big deal? Why week in and week out, we, we, we don't get over Jesus, right? It's not, you know, if you get into Christianity, you don't like start with Jesus and then move on to bigger and better things. You're consumed by Christ. He is all-encompassing and in every way glorious. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's Paul saying in Romans there? Despite who he is, Jesus loves you and he holds you and he is absolutely committed to you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So many wonderful passages about who Jesus is, but him being the highest, made himself the lowest, became the servant of all, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And why? Because he loved you, because he loves sinners like me, right? Like Matthew, Levi, sitting in his tax collector booth. The highest of high became the lowest of low so that you could have a relationship with God. And I think it's beautiful, and I don't think we can ever get over that. So for that reason, we're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew exalting Jesus. Father, thank you for this time together today. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which you have... Um, it, inspired regular human authors to write of things that are just beyond our understanding sometimes. Most of all, we thank you for the love that you demonstrated for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Help us over this next eight to ten weeks especially to remember our first love, and to be renewed in our hearts and our affections, our loyalty and our commitment to your only Son. We love you for him and thank you for your gift of salvation. We pray that you would use this message for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.